Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. The vault hangs open. Time to venture into the black void. That's right. Venturing down into the void for this one. This is uh, an episode. Now, this technically, this episode and the next vault episode uh, came out March 27th uh, and March 29th, 2018. Some of you might be saying, whoa, whoa, hold on. That's not even a year ago, even though it is from last year. Well, the reason we were rerunning these is because these are deep sea episodes. These are underwater episodes. And uh, uh, I have a, a fiction podcast uh, project that's uh, launching on the 31st here. Everyone uh, here is so excited. Yeah, yeah. We're, uh, we're all super excited. It's titled uh, Transgenesis. And so it seemed appropriate to feature some stuff to blow your mind, vault episodes that dealt with the, the deep ocean. And this episode, of course, concerns the real history of deep sea exploration, which is a, a, a more difficult proposition than you might imagine in this age of deep sea submersibles and James Cameron and all that. Oh, yeah. Uh, the early deep sea explorers were, <laughs> were going into some, some hairy stuff. Yeah, this is a, this is a weird odyssey uh, that we explore uh, with the bathosphere. Uh, so join us for this vault vault episode and the next vault episode. And if you want to to get a taste of transgenesis before it comes out, uh, head on over to transgenesis.show. We hope you enjoyed this vault episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. On the earth at night in moonlight, I can always imagine the yellow of sunshine, the scarlet of invisible blossoms, but here, when the searchlight was off, yellow and orange and red were unthinkable. The blue which filled all space admitted no thought of other colors. The return trip was made in 43 minutes, an average of one foot every two seconds. Twice during the ascent, I was aware of one or more indefinite large bodies moving about at a distance. On the way down, I had accredited them to an overexcited imagination, but after having the experience repeated on several deep dives, I am sure that I did see shadowy shapes of large and very real living creatures. What they were, I can only guess, and live in hopes of seeing them closer on some future descent. What this great creature was, I cannot say. A first and most reasonable guess would be a small whale or blackfish. We know that whales have a special chemical adjustment of the blood, which makes it possible for them to dive a mile or more and come up without getting the bends. So this paltry depth of 2,450 feet would be nothing for any similarly equipped cetacean. Or, less likely, it may have been a whale shark, which is known to reach a length of 40 feet. Whatever it was, it appeared and vanished so unexpectedly and showed so dimly that it was quite unidentifiable except as a large living creature. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, what were those readings from? Uh, Those were the words of William Beebe in his uh, biography, Half Mile Down. Half Mile Down. William Beebe was an American naturalist who lived from 1877 to 1962, and he was a fabulous writer. He was, yes. Uh, We were talking about this a little bit before we went on air. We We have 
I guess, two major areas to look to. His biography, Half Mile Down, which was certainly aimed at more of a, a general public audience. Uh, but even in his writings to a scientific audience, I admire the sort of directness and clarity of his writing. I was looking at a report of his from his underwater mm-hmm. expeditions that he delivered uh, in uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in the 1930s. And it, it's wonderfully written for a scientific paper. Yeah, I was I was reading so, so many of these accounts uh, whilst listening to some uh, ambient electronic music. And mm-hmm. it really, I was getting chill bumps at times when he's talking about descending into the dark and seeing these various bioluminescent creatures uh, uh, come into his line of vision, creatures that had, had never been seen before. And in some cases, we'll, as we'll discuss, creatures that have not been seen or captured since. Now that is spooky. So yeah. Robert, tell me, what, what does the main thing about William Beebe's career we're going to be focusing on today? Well, we're going to be talking about the bathysphere. The bathysphere. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, Greek for deep sphere. Uh, which was the <laughs> – which this was these uh, basically the submersible. The uh, deep ball. The deep ball uh, that uh, that he used on these just groundbreaking trips into the deep. Because yeah, prior to this uh, – this was in, in the 1930s. Uh, prior to this, subs could only get down about 383 feet or uh, – uh, 116 meters or so, and uh, and armored dive suits were only good for about 525 feet or 160 meters. But the bathysphere reached reached an astonishing 3,028 feet or 922.934 meters. That record was set in 1934, and it remained the record till 1949. And that record was set by William Beebe and his collaborator Otis Barton, who uh, who together did many dives in the steel ball, going deep into the depths off Bermuda in, in starting in 1930. So we'll tell the story of the bathysphere more as we go on. But I guess first we should talk about uh, why, why are we doing the bathysphere today? How did this come up? Well, I mean, on one hand, it's, it's a perfect topic because it deals with the ocean and the deep mysteries of the ocean, which we we come back around to again and again on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been working on a, a, a side, lot lately. A lot, yeah. A lot lately. And part of that is due to – I do have a side project I've been working on here at work that does concern uh, deep sea themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I've recently finished reading Peter Watt's novel Starfish, mm-hmm. which is a, a, a wonderful sort of cyberpunk sci-fi novel from uh, several years back that take uh, takes place in the deep ocean. Peter Watts, the author of Blindsight. Yes, yes. But he wrote Starfish many years before. Correct. Yeah, this was a, his first big splash, you could say. Uh, and then uh, and then also, Joe, you and I recently attended uh, the exhibit Unseen Oceans at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, uh, which is running March 12th, 2018 through January 6th, 2019. This was a really cool special exhibit. I really liked it. And it got into a thing that's really hard to explain in a in an interesting way, but it did it. It got into the character of plankton. Yes. Like making you feel that like plankton has personality. There are different types of plankton. And those types matter, and they're interesting. Like there are even these tiny xenomorphs among oh, the plankton. Yes, yeah, it's, it's easy to. I feel like we we often have this sort of uh, science biology textbook approach to plankton, mm-hmm. where they're a little more than a, a little side note at the beginning. And it's just like, oh, these are these are small creatures. Don't worry about them. Larger, more interesting creatures eat them. But of course, they're they're extremely vital. <laughs> and uh, and when you start uh, keying in on individual plankton specimens, uh, there is this rich diversity uh, that's uh, on on par with anything you would find uh, in other uh, regions of the animal kingdom. I mean, in a very real way, they're sort of the ground floor of the entire biosphere. Yeah. 
And so you do find not only just sort of uh, interesting but also forgettable prey creatures, you find fascinating predators and parasites. Mm -hmm. But another great thing about this exhibit is that it tells the story of people who have tried to illuminate the depths of the ocean. I mean, we, we see nature documentaries showing us footage of what happens under the sea. And because you've seen that footage now, you might have this sense like, OK, we finally figured out what the oceans are like. We know what's down there. It, it's, it, you know, it's, it's finally conquered territory. And in many ways, it is – it has been and still remains the most mysterious thing about planet Earth. It is not conquered territory. Right. There's so much we haven't seen and we don't know about the deep oceans. Yeah. And, and you know, the, one of the interesting things, one of, one of the reasons we're talking about William Beebe here today is that when you think about pioneers in deep sea exploration, uh, unless this is a, an, a topic that you've read extensively about before or uh, or whatnot, then some of the key names that come to mind are probably Jacques Cousteau, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and indeed, Jacques Cousteau did a lot uh, in, in the area of exploring our seas and popularizing uh, our understanding uh, of, of the seas. He's one of those figures that I think many people of our generation actually know more directly from parody of him than they know from him himself. Well, maybe for, for today's like younger generations, but, but he had a long-running television series narrated by Rod Serling. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, well, I just mean that I know I grew up not really knowing anything about Jacques Cousteau himself, but I saw countless cartoon and puppet French accented, oh, yeah. you know, underwater explorer type characters that were I, – I don't mean like they were attacking Jacques Cousteau or making fun of him, mm -hmm. but I don't know. He he seemed like a very parodiable character in American culture. Right. And of course, today we have James Cameron. Right. Um, who Who's – whose contribution to deep sea exploration is a is is real yeah um but uh, but but as as far as william Beebe goes uh, in the bathosphere like this is a story that i feel isn't as celebrated in in pop culture it's 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 certainly remembered in the in, in the history of uh, of marine biology and our exploration of the seas it's i mean no, it's not it's not something that's forgotten. Before we did this exhibit, I knew pretty much nothing about this. Yeah, yeah. But I think where I started really discovering it was uh, was in reading Starfish, uh, in which Peter Watts makes several mentions of BB and his contributions and his sightings. Now, just a quick note, this is going to be a two-parter. We started recording it, and we were just going way too long, so we went ahead and made the decision, let's cut it in two uh, and uh, and spread it out over the course of a week instead of dropping like a, a nearly two-hour episode right in your lap. Well, I mean, there's a lot of deep sea out there, right? That's you right. can't blame us for talking forever on that. Yeah, and we're only scratching the surface on it. <laughs> Well, maybe to best understand Bibi's contributions, it helps to turn our eyes to the past and to look at what humanity's knowledge of the deepest parts of the ocean or even not the deepest, even the deeper parts of the ocean mm -hmm. was like before the bathysphere expedition. And so what we knew and what the process of exploring the deep sea was like. So, Robert, will you come along with me to the Age of Sea Monsters? Yes, yes. Here there be dragons. So, given how little we know about the deep ocean, just think about how mysterious the depths were before just about 100 years ago or in even earlier times when less was known about biology in general that you could extrapolate to the deep ocean. When stories of sea monsters the size of whole islands rising out of the, out of the deep was really not out of the realm of possibility. That's something I'd like to emphasize. 
it was not just fanciful to imagine back then. You had no reason necessarily to doubt stories of sea monsters, right? Yeah. I mean, because ultimately, what did we know of the of the depths or even the, the greater expanses of the sea? We did not know about whole continents yeah. uh, out there. So uh, it, it, it would seem entirely possible that you would have giant uh, sea creatures. And in fact, we saw giant sea creatures in the forms of, of spouting whales and, uh, and various carcasses that would occasionally uh, drift up to shore. Exactly right. So most of the time in human history was a time when people could not look beneath the ocean. They didn't They didn't really have any idea other than what sailors might have said they saw coming up to the surface every now and then. But that was just a peak. That was just what came up to mm-hmm. the surface. I mean, what's deep down there? Who the heck knows? So one example of the kinds of beliefs that used to be so plausible about the creatures that lived in the deep, I want to uh, reference a passage that's quoted in Chet Van Duzer's book, Sea Monsters on Medieval and Renaissance Maps, which, Robert, this is a book you loaned me, and it's Fantastic. Oh, yeah. This is, a, this is a wonderful book. Wonderful content and there's so many rich illustrations from these old maps. Yeah, they're they're wonderful. Now, originally, this quote is from the Koningskogsia or the King's Mirror, which is a 13th century old Norse educational text. So it's got uh, – it's written in the form of a dialogue and it's got characters talking to each other about things in the world. And we come to this passage talking about marine life. So uh, here it is. Quote, There is a fish not yet mentioned, which it is scarcely advisable to speak about on account of its size, which to most men will seem incredible. There are, moreover, but very few who can tell anything definite about it, inasmuch as it is rarely seen by men, for it almost never approaches the shore or appears where fishermen can see it, and I doubt that this sort of fish is very plentiful in the sea. In our language, it is usually called the kraken." I can say nothing definite as to its length in L's, for on those occasions when men have seen it, it has appeared more like an island than a fish. Nor have I heard that one has ever been caught or found dead. It seems likely that there are but two in all the ocean, and that these beget no offspring, for I believe it is always the same ones that appear. Nor would it be well for other fishes if they were as numerous as other whales, seeing that they are so immense and need so much food. It is said, that when these fishes want something to eat, they are in the habit of giving forth a violent belch, which brings up so much food that all sorts of fish in the neighborhood, both large and small, will rush up in hopes of getting nourishment and good fare. Meanwhile, the monster keeps its mouth open, and inasmuch as its opening is about as wide as a sound or fjord, the fishes cannot help crowding in great numbers." But as soon as its mouth and belly are full, the monster closes its mouth and thus catches and shuts in all the fishes that just previously had rushed in eagerly to seek food. Oh, wow. That is a fabulous description. Yeah, and that's an amazing hunting strategy. Yeah, offhand, I can't think of uh, a real-world organism that actually employs something like that. Well, there's sort of – there are – versions in much smaller scales. Now, obviously, you've got like the snapping turtle with the fake worm lure Mm -hmm. in its mouth, and it'll wait for the fish to sneak in to get the food and then clamp shut. But those are artificial lures. Right. What we have here is like this creature has eaten so much sea life, and then it vomits that sea life up, which brings in greater uh, populations of sea life, which it then just just sucks all of that down. Yeah, but I want to emphasize again, this sounds ridiculous to us, but we're living after Darwin. We know a lot more. 
more. We're living after Darwin and we're living after, you know, uh, submarines going down and looking at, well, what kind of sea life is there really? We, we still don't know a whole lot, but we know enough that this doesn't seem plausible. But if you were armed with only what an educated Norwegian courtier knew about deep sea life in the 13th century, how would you argue against these accounts? Indeed. And, uh, you know, this is this is another point that Chet Van Duzer makes in his book is that like – in, in the ancient world, it was it was often assumed that anything that existed on the surface likely had a counterpart uh, beneath the waves. Yeah, the mirror world. Then, I mean, the names stick with us: the sea lion, the sea cow, sea cucumber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess the sea cucumber too. But the sea hamburger. <laughs> but basically, we, when you start looking at all these fabulous beasts, and I think we alluded to this a little bit in our aquatic humanoids uh, episode episodes. Uh, you find all these various just ridiculous like sea dogs, uh, mm-hmm. et cetera. The, really the idea that whatever we have here, there must be a counterpart beneath the waves. Mm-hmm. And I mean to a certain extent, there's a, there's a bit of truth in that. Just the idea that, that whatever diversity we have on the surface, that diversity must be represented beneath the waves. But of course in reality, it's even, it's even greater than that. Yeah. The, the, the vast majority of the planet's biodiversity is in the ocean. Well, yeah, there's just so much ocean and there are so many ecological niches to fill within it. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll jump right back in. All right, we're back. Now, of course, as we've said that, that over time, there has been this steady increasing catalog of some knowledge about undersea life. There's still a lot we don't know, but we know a lot more than we used to. And one of the earliest major explorations of marine biology was that of Aristotle in the 4th century BCE. In his biology or this history of of animal life, Aristotle got a lot wrong. Like, for example, he said, the octopus is a stupid creature for it will approach a man's hand if it be lowered in the water. (laughs) Now, on the other hand, Aristotle for his time, if you consider his limitations, got an astonishing amount right. Uh, For example, he correctly determined that whales and dolphins were not fish and he made lots of other extremely astute classifications. So uh, file this away under Aristotle. Aristotle occasionally says things that sound dumb to us, but was not dumb. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we've touched on this before on other topics. Uh, f- from our vantage point, it's easy to, to say, oh, yeah, you really screwed that up, Aristotle. But really, uh, given what he had to work with, his his uh, understanding of the natural world was amazing. Yeah, I just mean, think about Aristotle's, the research methods available to him. Now, mm-hmm. a lot of what he did, he probably, uh, he probably got a lot of information by like talking to fisher folk and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But he also, I think some people have said, you know, it really looks from some of his statements that like Aristotle performed dissections. So he must have had some access to specimens and it's not so easy to always get specimens in the ancient world. Like how, yeah. how do you collect them? Do you just like throw some nets and hope you get some good stuff? Yeah, especially – this is especially important considering that you have other um, historians and writers of the ancient world who are very much going on second, third, and fourth-hand accounts mm-hmm. of what was going on elsewhere in the world. And, and, and that's where we see some of these more ridiculous notions of, uh, of even terrestrial uh, monsters and creatures. Totally. It's like – it's through a glass darkly on, in like four ways, yeah. right? So you're getting it secondhand, you know, that you heard a story from somebody who heard a story who also was not really beneath the waves when he or she saw this thing but just saw something poke up from the surface. I mean there, there are so many levels of remove from the actual biological reality that it's not hard to understand where these myths about sea monsters come from. 
So to explore the idea of ways of understanding the deep sea, like the research methods available to us before recent times and like the invention of modern technology like sonar and other stuff, uh, there were I, I want to say there were basically two broad methods for studying the deepest parts of the ocean. And for a little mythological flair, I, wa I want to give them some mythological names to help us keep them organized. Uh, so one I want to call the Ebisu method. So Ebisu is the Japanese luck god, often depicted as a jolly fisherman with a bright red bream on his line. Oh, nice. He's always got a fishing pole. So the Ebisu method is to use some kind of method to pull creatures up from the deep to the surface so you can study them. Go fishing, basically. Okay. And the other one I want to call the Gilgamesh method because Gilgamesh, uh, of course, is the protagonist of the 4,000-year-old Mesopotamian work known as the Epic of Gilgamesh. And if you'll recall in, from the Epic of Gilgamesh, in the second half of the story, Gilgamesh, he gets obsessed with finding the secret of eternal life. And in Tablet 11, he receives a tip that there is a plant at the bottom of the ocean covered in prickling thorns, which if you pull it up from the ocean, it'll grant you eternal life. And so to read from the Andrew George translation, quote, heavy stones he tied to his feet and they pulled him down to the ocean below. He took the plant and pulled it up and lifted it. The heavy stones he cut loose from his feet and the sea cast him up on its shore. So the idea is Gilgamesh, he weighs himself down, he goes to the very bottom of the ocean, he cuts up this plant, and then he cuts himself loose. So the Gilgamesh method, I'm going to say, is to dive as deep as you can into the dark world and see what you can see. But of course, you also have to be able to come back and report what you've seen. Right. Not, every, not all of us are Gilgamesh, yeah. right? It seemed like he could hold his breath for a long time and uh, withstand some crushing compression. <laughs> uh, they probably didn't necessarily understand at the time. Uh, but so people have been accidentally practicing versions of the Ebisu method for thousands of years, right? So of course, the easiest thing is that sometimes dead organisms from the deep sea will wash up on the shore in various states of decomposition. And people could look at that and say, hmm, I wonder what this is. Yeah. Well, we still see this all the time. I, I feel like only a few months will go 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 by before there's another uh, weird dead thing that's washed up on the the beach, and various websites will will start uh, speculating as to what it was. And generally, they'll say, "Oh, it's probably uh, Nessie. It's probably a dinosaur. Right. It's yeah. Probably a sea monster." I mean, I'm torn because I I love a good beach monster, and I hate the Daily Mail. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the latter is the best place to go for the former. Yeah. You, you will always get the beach monsters interpreted in various ways. But, I mean, beach monsters, while grotesque and often classified as monsters that don't really exist, can show us some things about the deep ocean. Right. Uh, the other thing would be accidental Ebisu method practicing just through fishing. People are throwing nets in order to catch some fish to eat, but they pull up something interesting by accident. Now, whether you're practicing the, this method on purpose or by accident, there are definitely limits to what you can learn through it, and we'll explore some of those limits in a bit. One surprising thing to learn is that according to some reports, ancient peoples actually did practice versions of the Gilgamesh method as well. So uh, going back to Aristotle in his 360 BCE work Problematum or The Problems, Aristotle actually gives the earliest description I'm aware of of deep diving technology. And so this is going to be a version of the diving bell. And he's talking about divers who fish for sponges on the seafloor, and he discusses all kinds of weird 
weird practices these divers use to make the deep more tolerable. And these include fastening sponges around their ears or cutting slits in their own ears and nostrils. And in this section, Aristotle writes that, quote, in order that these fissures of sponges may be supplied with a facility of respiration, a kettle is let down to them, not filled with water, but with air, which constantly assists the submerged man. It is forcibly kept upright in its descent in order that it may be sent down at an equal level all around to prevent the air from escaping and the water from entering. Now, if you never, like, played this game in the bath as a kid, you, know, <laughs> you, you can make a simple diving bell just by taking a cup or a bowl or something and turning it upside down and then pressing it straight down into the water and not letting it wobble. And what it'll do is it'll keep a bubble of air trapped underneath the cup. And you could, if you were a tiny diver, swim up in there or stay in there and breathe down at the bottom. But this comes with a lot of risks, right? Like if it gets tipped over slightly... The air can escape, and uh, and of course you're still going to be dealing with all kinds of weird pressure problems. Yeah, this is this is one of those things that we we all experiment with in the bathtub. I feel uh, I, I've observed I've observed my uh, my son doing this as well, mm-hmm. but he has not uh, reached the conclusion. Hey, why don't we take one of these to the ocean? <laughs> but I can I can imagine that this idea has been around as long as we've had. Bowls, essentially, as long as we've had even just uh, uh, coconut husks or or something uh, to that effect. Yeah, it's hard to know for sure because Aristotle doesn't make it clear who invented this technique. And he doesn't make it clear how long it's been around or how common it was. He just mentions that some divers can do this. So we don't know where it comes from or how far it was taken in the ancient world. But here is a really weird connection I came across. According to medieval legend, Aristotle's student, Alexander the Great, was his own kind of great undersea adventurer and pioneer of the school of Gilgamesh. Robert, had you ever come across the uh, the Alexander the Great as deep sea explorer before? I don't believe I had, though uh, the William Beebe makes reference to it uh-huh. uh, in his book Half Mile Down. Yeah. Uh, so there are a lot of versions of this legend, and, and to be very clear, these are— Pretty much definitely false. Uh, maybe some versions of them are inspired by something that roughly happened, but but as told, they're definitely false. So the oldest version, I think, is the one about how while Alexander the Great was laying siege to the city of Tyre in Lebanon, he had divers swimming underwater to either remove or to put in place boom defenses. And a boom defense is something you would put in in a harbor or a channel that's like a huge chain or object that you would place under underwater to prevent the passage of ships. It recalls uh, something Tyrion Lannister does in the Battle of Blackwater Bay. You remember that? Oh, I don't remember. The, I remember all the fire, obviously, but I don't remember the use of chains to— uh... Yeah, in the book, he puts a big chain across the water. Oh, And yes, this, yes, yes. this prevents the ships from getting past, and this is an actual technique. So in some versions of the story, I think Alexander's trying to get rid of boom defenses, and some he's trying to put them in place. But in any case, he's got divers working for him. And in one version of the story written by a 7th century Arab historian and quoted in The History of Underwater Exploration by Richard F. Marx, Alexander wants to go underwater either to help with this task or to see how it's coming along. So he has his workmen build him a huge wooden box with glass windows that are sealed with resin and wax to keep the water out. And then the room, this box, is weighed down with iron and lead and stone and then lowered into the water between two ships with Alexander and a couple of his secretaries inside the box. 
And then from inside this sealed room, they can look out the glass windows and see what's happening deep underwater in the ocean. Quote, Thanks to the transparency of the glass and the limpidity of the water, Alexander and his two companions were able to see the marine monsters and a species of demon having the head of a ferocious beast attached to a human body. Some of them carried axes, others saws, and still others hammers, so they looked like workmen. Alexander and his two secretaries drew careful pictures of these monsters. Then they pulled the line, and at this signal, the men on the ships drew up the case. The king stepped out and was carried back to Alexandria. Well, you know, hearing that, I, I, I feel that Alexander deserved to be frightened a little bit since he was really kind of micromanaging on, on all this. He really should have learned to delegate a bit more. Well, what I like about the story is that it does imply some kind of scientific observation. It's just observation of demons instead <laughs> of real wildlife. Yeah. Uh, but there's actually there, – there are other funny versions of this. There's a totally different version of Alexander as Gilgamesh uh, that I came across in this illustrated manuscript. It's an early 15th century German manuscript telling a story of how Alexander goes down to the bottom of the ocean in a diving bell and he trusts – so this would be not, a, not an encased room with glass windows but like a regular diving bell. So a bell upturned in the water that's got an air bubble in it and he goes down and uh, he entrusts his loyal mistress to watch over the chain that can pull the bell back up to the surface. And unfortunately, while she's watching the chain, her lover gets her to run off with him and abandon Alexander and throw the chain into the sea. Oh. Not good for Alex. <laughs> I like the theme of this, though, because it uh, basically it portrays Alexander the Great as, as indeed a great individual who can do great things and go places that no other man can go. Yeah. But in doing so, there's a there there's there's an inherent weakness. Well, he uses technology. It's mm -hmm. not just like magic super strength. He can swim to the bottom of the ocean. He builds a technological marvel to get him down there. Mm -hmm. But in doing so, he neglects his mistress. Right, yeah. <laughs> and I've got an illustration here, uh, Robert, you can look at that's got Alex uh, down in this, in this <laughs> bubble. He's looking very unhappy. He's got a big mustache and he appears to be frowning and scowling at the surface where his mistress and her lover are uh, cavorting in this ship. And then meanwhile, in the background, there are these gigantic fish swimming by that I guess he's not even noticing because he's angry. Yeah, and then, but at least they do look like real fish and not uh, visions from hell. Right. Uh, I, I believe the example that uh, that William Beebe draws on is the idea that uh, that he, that Alexander the Great uh, uh, observes a fish that is so large that it takes days for it to pass him by. Yeah. So another, uh, you know, equally outrageous, uh, or perhaps just. Uh, uh, exaggerated example of what life might be underwater. And, I, and that's the, the feeling I'm getting from all of these accounts. It sounds like less an example of, hey, somebody went underwater and they saw this, mm -hmm. but more of a almost like a science fictional uh, scenario. What would it be like if I could go underwater and see the things that are down there? And then to build that, I have to base it on what do I believe exist under the water. Well, I would say much in the same way that the science fiction of space encouraged people to become real astronauts and want to explore. Mm -hmm. I think maybe some of this ancient and medieval science fiction about the underwater realms may have inspired people to want to actually build real diving bell technology and go down there. And yeah. that, that is what eventually happened. Genuine scientific interest in the ocean depths and the real use of diving technologies like the diving bell showed up again in more recent 
recent decades, specifically starting around the 16th century, you you start to see people messing with diving bells. How deep can we go? Uh, some of this was just for purely commercial reasons, like people wanted to salvage shipwrecks and get rich and all that. Mm-hmm. But also there was a genuine spirit about uh, of exploration about the deep ocean to get down there and see what you could see. But of course, as we mentioned, diving bells have a lot of limitations. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss the the pre-BB world of uh, deep sea exploration just a little bit more. All right, we're back. So we've talked about ancient investigation into the nature of the deep sea, both real and mythological, in the form of the Ebisu method, like fishing, pulling things up and seeing what they're like, and the Gilgamesh method, diving down and seeing what you can see yourself. And in the 19th century, the Ebisu method, uh, by way of the biological dredge, was very popular for naturalists, zoologists, oceanographers, all these people trying to understand what existed in the hidden deep. And one practitioner of this method, the biological dredge was the British naturalist Edward Forbes. Now, Forbes was a naturalist from the Isle of Man. He was reportedly a, a very likable dude. People, people took a shine to him. But uh, in, in 1841, Edward Forbes was on a journey aboard a surveying ship called the HMS Beacon in the Mediterranean Sea. And during this voyage, they would dredge the water. So what you have to imagine there is like a, a bag or a bucket type contraption that you would drag along the bottom of the ocean from behind a ship. And then when you drag it along and scoop some stuff up, then you'd pull it back up and see what you caught. All right. I, I've conducted the, the very same sort of investigation uh, in the surf with my son. You oh, yeah? just drag a bucket, get a bunch of, uh, of sand, and then you dump it out and see what you manage to catch. And sometimes you, you do find uh, an interesting organism. Yeah? What have you found that way? Oh, they are – we always call them sand fleas, but uh, they're not actual sand fleas. They're little isopods. I, I can't remember this specific species name offhand, but depending on the – Sort of on the Florida beach you go to, you can find a number of these. Are they the jumping ones? They don't jump. They burrow really quickly. So basically, if you if you are able to scoop underneath them, mm-hmm. they can't dig uh, away from you. Oh, I see. And most of them are really small, but you can find some that are the size of uh, really like the size of your thumb. They're pretty fun. That's cool. Though I thought you were referring to things I have actually seen. That I, I don't know if they're fleas or what. I should look up what these organisms are. One time we were up on the northwest coast, uh, I believe a beach in Oregon, and the beach was just covered in what appeared to be jumping fleas. There mm-hmm. were these little like white pale fleas that would jump all over you. It was kind of horrible. Yeah, and I think I, – I believe those are more accurately sand fleas and for whatever reason – and, and I've talked to other – it wasn't just my family. I've talked mm-hmm. to other people and I've asked them, well, what did you call these things when you were a kid going to the beach? And they're like, oh, yeah, we call those sand fleas. So, yeah. Uh, but again, they're they're more technically a variety of isopod. Well, Forbes was playing this game, the drag the bucket game, at much much deeper than just in the surf and catching much more than just sand fleas. So uh, Forbes noticed, though, as you play this game, as you you go through the, the Mediterranean Sea on the beacon, dredging the bottom. That as you move deeper and deeper into deeper waters, the dredge came up with fewer types of organisms. So you can see where the reasoning probably went from there, right? The lower down you go, the less life there is. So extrapolating from his observations in 1843, Forbes proposed what came to be known as the abyssus theory or the azoic hypothesis. And this specifically said that below 300 fathoms, which is about 550 meters or 1,800 feet, the oceans were completely dead. Now, this makes a certain kind of sense, right? 
like a lot of false hypotheses, it, it has this sense of truthiness. It feels right. And other contemporary scientists backed Forbes up. So I'm going to quote from an 1863 textbook by the Scottish geologist David Page in which Page is discussing the powerful compression effects of vast amounts of water. So he explains that at 4,000 fathoms, the pressure of the ocean would be about 750 atmospheres, and he considers that just intolerable. Quote, at vast depths, therefore, it is generally supposed that vegetable and animal life as known to us could not possibly exist. And though some recent soundings of the North Seas at the depth of 1,260 fathoms would seem to oppose this opinion, yet the paucity and uncertainty of these trials leave the question still in doubt. And we may, in the meantime, adhere to the general belief that the extreme depressions of the ocean, like the extreme elevations of the land, are barren and lifeless solitudes. All right. So in, in this case, he's drawing upon just the, the idea that uh, the, the, the water pressure would be too great for life as we know it to exist. Yeah. It, I mean, truthy, right? Like if you're yeah. under 750 atmospheres, couldn't possibly be a thing to survive that, right? Okay. Yeah. I, I, can, I can see where that, that idea could um, – it had a certain amount of truthiness to it. Yeah. Uh, but now, now, certainly, we know that uh, that 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 the sunlit portions of the ocean that that's where m most of the life is. That is mm -hmm. where uh, that's where you encounter all of the plankton, the creatures that that, that feed upon the plankton, mm -hmm. uh, creatures that depend upon the sunlight, and then the creatures that consume those organisms. That is going to be found in the upper ocean. But another thing they could have reasoned is. I wonder what happens to all those organisms in the sunlit area when they die. Hmm. And then uh, if they're going to if they're going to be packing some good chemical energy with them after they die, wouldn't something want to take advantage of that? Exactly. And then you you also have to begin to say, well, if everything is if, if all the life is up here in the sunlit ocean, then isn't the dark ocean isn't that a great place to, say, go hide out? Yeah. Is it a great place to maybe uh, set up as your main base of operations? Right. Uh, so really this hypothesis should have been a non-starter. Forbes mm -hmm. was completely wrong. Uh, since many dredging experiments had already at the time of Forbes caught life forms from depths of below 300 fathoms, uh, Page alludes to this. Nevertheless, it was supported by some for several decades, but later biologists and oceanographers eventually just beat this zombie down like <laughs> <laughs> the, it, 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 uh, it didn't survive all that much longer. And one of the many researchers to assist in knocking down the zombie azoic hypothesis was the Scottish naturalist Charles Wyville Thompson. And in an 1873 report called The Depths of the Sea, Thompson published the results of his own dredging expeditions in the seas north of Scotland. So while dredging to a depth of 650 fathoms, he discovered all kinds of invertebrate organisms that Forbes had missed. And I'm, I'm not sure of the reason, but one thing I've read that may or may not be true is that later investigators had better dredging equipment than Forbes, mm, which okay. was less likely to spill the things it caught on the way back up to the surface. You can imagine this would be a problem. You're like trying to pull up the stuff you caught and it's just like going all over the place. Yeah, your bucket isn't big enough or you're not handling the bucket properly. Yeah. You can run into all sorts of problems. Now, Thompson would also go on to head up one of the most important oceanographic research expeditions of all time about the deep sea, which was the Challenger Expedition beginning in 1872, which did a lot of stuff. It circumnavigated the globe on a ship called the HMS Challenger and it collected an absolute wealth of scientific observation, much of which is still 
still relevant today. Uh, they catalog more than 4,000 new species. They did soundings in the ocean all over the world and came up with the general shape of Earth's ocean basins. And they discovered ocean features like the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and the Challenger Deep, which is, of course, named for the expedition. But still, as wonderful as all this knowledge was, there were still limits imposed by the fact that they were using what we what I've been calling the Ebisu method. They're, they're pulling stuff up from the bottom. Like, imagine trying to study the Amazon rainforest by flying over it in an airplane and dragging a bucket along the forest floor <laughs> behind you and then reeling it up and seeing what you've got in the bucket. Like, you see some problems already, but also a factor in the differences in the conditions of the deep ocean and the surface uh, where we'd want to study the things we pull up from the bottom. That That's a problem too, right? You've got massive changes in light, in temperature, which is a big one, and in pressure. And so maybe a better analogy is like imagining an alien satellite studying us by scooping us up in a net and then pulling us up into outer space to have a look, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes organisms dredged up from the deep ocean can be kept alive if you keep them refrigerated, but other times they're just going to be killed or even reduced to goo in the process of removing them from their natural environment. Uh, one interesting fact is that many deep sea creatures are actually able to withstand lower pressure on the surface and others are not. Uh, for example, I found a blog post by a marine biologist uh, named Dr. Craig McLean who wrote, quote, I've tried to collect a particularly gelatinous red sea cucumber several times. Each time at the surface when I pull the collection canister off the ROV, the canister is filled with thick red Kool-Aid, which I presume is the remains of the red sea cucumber. So there are these limitations to the Ebisu method. If you want to keep pulling stuff up from the bottom to study it at the top, you're always going to have a sort of cap on what sorts of scientific progress you're able to make. So... Would there ever be a better way to study the deep other than these incredibly dangerous and limited-powered diving bells? Would a true Gilgamesh method arise? Ah, well, Joe, a true Gilgamesh will arise, but he's going to have to wait till next episode because right. I think we're out of time here today. So that is going to be the next episode where we primarily discuss the bathysphere and the work of William Beebe. Correct. But yeah, before we close out today, I, I, I just want to try to imagine what it's like to be in an oceanographer or marine biologist mindset before we get to the bathysphere, so leaving off at the end of everything we've discussed today, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you've been stuck on the surface of the water. You just can't really dive down and see what's beneath the ocean yourself, or at least not very well. And so you're, you're limited to these methods of dragging buckets along or trawling with nets or trying to scoop stuff up from the, from the seafloor. What, what is that like to ha like not have access to all of this life that you want to study and, and always performing these kind of like random samplings as the only way to get at it? Yeah, and then even as these various technologies do come on online, which I alluded to earlier, you, you don't have the ability to really get into the depths. There mm -hmm. are depths of the ocean that are just beyond your ability uh, to venture into. Yeah, and, and you, can't, you can't explore and see it the way it's supposed to be, right? Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, supposed to be. The way it naturally is, to study you must destroy if you're going to be sampling in the Ebisu method. Right. And But then how do you explore it yourself without destroying yourself, essentially? And that uh, that is where the bathysphere comes in. Uh, next time on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. 
It's almost like nature doesn't want us to explore the deep sea. Yeah, like it's almost like it's a warning. It's or it's <laughs> almost like we're we're fragile flesh creatures that uh, have have evolved only to thrive within a very slim portion of our own environment. Uh, so hey, we're gonna we are going to uh, leave you now. Uh, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind many of which have uh, involved uh, uh, the ocean and in many cases the deep ocean, then you can find them there. You also find blog posts, links out to our very social media accounts as well. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for a future episode, or just to say hi, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.